This week on Black Refresh 2020, we have Loki Mohalan, founder and executive director of the Joan Trump Hour Mohalan Foundation, whose mission is to end racism through education. Loki is also an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker whose documentaries tell the untold stories of racism and the civil rights movement. Loki has inherited the courage and passion to fight racism from his history-making mother, Joan. All right, welcome to another episode of Black Refresh 2020. I am your host, Todd Inman. Today, we are actually blessed to have a gentleman by the name of Loki Mulholland. He is the founder and executive director of the Joan Trumpauer Mulholland Foundation. So thanks so much for joining me, Loki. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. And uh, it looks from your bio that you're actually in Utah. I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're actually probably one of the first people, if not the first person I ever met from Utah. So uh, just in terms of what we have going on with this pandemic, what's life like out there right now? Uh, I think it's pretty much just like for everyone else. You know, I mean, it's, uh, they're slowly trying to open things up, but they were, they were actually pretty good about it from the, from the get-go. So we're, we've been very fortunate. Our numbers have been very low, but um, they're, they're starting to, you know, open the, they're talking about the theaters now, they're talking about the oh, restaurants. Wow. I'm like, man, you all be the guinea pigs. I ain't touching this. Yeah, I, I get it, man. I get it. So uh, so let's jump right in, Loki. So uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about uh, your mom, who is is Joan Trumpauer Mulholland, um, and, and, and all her, her wonderful stories, but also how that blended into you starting the foundation. Yeah, so yeah, Joan, you know, mom is just mom, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's just who she is. But uh, her story is, is, is quite remarkable. So my mom was uh, 19 years old when she joined the Freedom Rides. Um, it's this iconic photograph of her, her mugshot, um, this white Southern woman, and she's just so poised and so determined, and, and she's, there's no fear in her eyes. Um, but by that time, she had already been involved in about three dozen citizen protests when she joined the Freedom Rides, and they, they put them on death row in Parchment Penitentiary out in the Delta. That's not too far from where, uh, right down the road from where uh, Emmett Till was killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, uh, when she, once she, she was released, uh, a couple months later, she went to Tougaloo College, HBCU, just right outside Jackson. She was the, the first white student there. And then she would, uh, a couple years later, join uh, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Yes. So, right on. And uh, yeah, yeah and, 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 and you know, most people know my mom from the back of her head. Right. There's this iconic photograph of her uh, at the lunch counter in Jackson, Woolworth, sit in um, May 28th, 1963. And there's uh, Ann Moody, my mother, and John Salter. It's actually the most integrated sit in in the movement because you have African American woman, a white woman, and then John, who appears to be white, but he's actually Native American. Mm. Um, but there's the photo of, my, of people pouring stuff in my mom's head. And, and you can actually see that uh, recreation of that, the statue of my mother at the uh, National Civil Rights Museum at, at a wow. lunch counter. Um, but that, 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 that image and that story is just, it's just so compelling. It's, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, but her, her, so she's, she's kind of as far as Gump of civil rights. I mean, she was everywhere and knew everyone. Mm. Uh, at least everyone knew her as well. So there's, there's pictures of her with Dr. King. She went to Megger's office. Her and you know, Mrs. Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, cross paths, and uh, even to this day, there's you know, John Lewis always wants to get his hug and those sort of things. But you know, because this was a family, this you know, the civil rights community, very tight community. Um, but 
but she was there at the funeral for three of the little girls at the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. She was there with Bob Moses, helping to, you know, talking about the Freedom Summer. And in fact, she was on the Klan's most wanted list. And Annie talks about that list, actually, in uh, Coming of Age in Mississippi in her seminal book about the, the movement. And, um, you know, her face never got X'd out, but Meggers did, as she said in, in the film, An Ordinary Hero. Uh, and they almost did actually almost try to kill her, uh, her and a group of friends in a car outside Kenton, Mississippi in 64. Um, just a couple weeks later, they ended up killing their friends instead, Cheney Goodman and Schwarmer. Um, so, but, but my mom's story actually, a lot of people like to focus on those particular events. Her story actually begins back uh, around 1951 when she visits her grandmother in Georgia. Every summer they'd go from Virginia down to Georgia, visit that family down there. Um, and on a dare that year, she's about 10, 11 years old, she on this dare goes to the black part of town. Now they called it something else, of course. Um, but uh, she was struck first by how these adults would disappear. People started going behind their doors and closing the shutters to their house or hiding behind the house or you know, behind the, 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 the clothes on the line and stuff because no one wanted to be seen seeing these two little white girls walking down the street because if something happened to them and the police said, hey, did you see him? Suddenly, you know, you know that they've, they've got someone. That's all they're looking for. They're just looking for an excuse to lynch somebody and here is someone we can lynch. Um, but they get to this schoolhouse and she sees this one room shack, as she described it, on stone piles with a, an outhouse in the back and a, stone, and a, a, a pot belly stove inside, no glass in the windows, no, not, not a lick of paint, as she said, and a, uh, and a pump for water out front. And this was a, in stark contrast to a brand new brick school that was built for the white kids in Oconee. And it's actually still the nicest building in Oconee is that brick school, which is now a nursing home. Mm. But she, was, she said it rattled her soul. She said it was uh, something that, um, she said, this is wrong, I'm gonna do something about it. And she didn't say this is wrong, hopefully someone will take care of it. She took it upon herself. And those principles from that were, you know, a lot of people ask her, where did she get that courage? Where, where did that come from? Well, it came from church. You know, she was taught, uh, you know, the golden rule. Doing to others you haven't done to you. And she took it seriously, she said. She yeah. said that uh, white Southerners were hypocrites and weren't living what, what they were preaching. Yes. And she felt that, you know, she needed to do something about it and took it upon herself to do that. And would get the opportunity, really the, the main catalyst, there was a few things here and there before that, but really it really uh, went into overdrive when her mother sent her to Duke University because it was a safe school, safe meant segregated. And so they send, she sends her there, and which was the worst place to send my mother because just down the road on February 1st, 1960 was the Greensboro sit-in, mm. which kicked off the student movement. The next sit-in was in Durham, which is where Duke is. And my mother was invited to participate um, in the sit-ins and such. And they say the rest is history. Yeah. That, that's incredible. That's incredible. So, you know, obviously uh, you being raised by your mother and, and, and your mother is still living. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so so we want to certainly let the uh, let the audience understand that you know we're talking about a a living person. Yeah. Um. But but you know you being raised by her and spending so so much time with her. What do you think about her her personality, her makeup, 
Um, you know, besides the fact that she was inspired through her, her church exposure and her, um, I guess, relationship to the Bible and so forth. Right. But what about her character? You say that, that this is something I could believe my mom would do, you know? You know, uh, oh, my mom said, do it. You better do it. I'll tell you that. I mean, <laughs> she was, uh, she, she says, she, you know, my, my mom's just very, she sees things very black and white. Mm-hmm. She, she doesn't like the mess in the middle there. Um, if it, you know, if, if we say that all men are created equal, then all men are created equal. Mm. If we say that we should treat each other the way we want to be treated, then that's what you do. Mm. Um, so she was very kind of resolute, absolute in that regard. That's that's really how she lives her life. I mean, she says, you know, she's she's very stubborn, and that that can be you know bullheaded, and that that can be good, but that also can get her in trouble. Okay. Uh, and it, and, it, and at times it did. Uh, she she wasn't perfect. She had to learn just like everyone else. Being a Southerner in Virginia is not the same as being a Southerner in Mississippi. And there's yeah. different rules. And the deeper you got in the South, you know, the, the, the harsher those you know, consequences were at times. Um, there's actually a, a, a podcast that, a episode that I have about that called The Wrong Time to Be Right. Mm. And where her stand almost got people killed. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so Loki, just as far as, um, you know, you, your mom and, and being one of the few, uh, you know, white people uh, to mm-hmm. be this involved right. um, with the civil rights struggle back then, um, as far as like the, the rest of her career, just as a normal um, employee, did it have lasting effects on anything? Oh, yeah. No, she, well, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, so her, she, you know, she graduated from Tougaloo College. And uh, her, her mother actually never recognized that she actually got a degree. Because my, mm. her, my grandmother was a segregationist to the day she died. Mm. Um, and she went actually, after school, she went back to D.C., started to raise a family. She started working for the Smithsonian. But they uh, basically they told her, it's like, look, you're a woman. You know, uh, all you're going to do is get married, have babies, and quit. So I, I thought it was quite ironic that she was doing all this work in the civil rights movement only to be you know, discriminated against you know, based on her gender Yeah, uh, yeah. right afterwards. But she went on to actually work as an educator. Uh, she was particularly taught ESL students and uh, did that, and tried to take the principles that she learned in those lessons and so forth and you know, not only imprint them upon us, her own kids, but also the students that she had uh, her her ability to interact with people who who didn't necessarily look like her or talk like her or had the same beliefs, uh, you know, you know helped tremendously. Particularly in a in a, in a situation, you know, still Northern Virginia. This is the '80s, uh, '70s, and '80s, and such. In particular, uh, there's there were still quite a few you know, issues going on there in, in, in the education system as there are today, but. You know, that far removed from from the '60s, and so uh, those principles that she had, she she brought to bear. There was a story that she tells um, where the, the, the at my elementary school, the music teacher was there was like international whatever day type of thing and, or week, and and it's like you know, is there a song we can sing? And my mom's like, well, how about lift every voice and sing? Mm. And the music teacher's like, what's that? <laughs> she's like, well, it's, called, it's the Negro National Anthem. Right, right. And so she's like, well, great. Uh, and my mom says, she said, I can pretty much guarantee that was the first time 
that song was ever sung at an integrated school in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it was those sort of things that she would always do. Uh, even to this day, she's, you know, very much about, uh, we were at the, at the opening of the, of the uh, Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, which surprisingly is the only state-sponsored civil rights museum in the country. Mm. It happened to be in Mississippi. Yes. And sure enough, the choir is doing this medley and they break out and they lift every voice and sing and my mom stands up. No one else stands up. Yeah. My mom stands and, and she shoots me some daggers. Okay, I'm standing yeah. up now. I didn't see anyone else stand up, but my mom right. stood up and all of a sudden everyone was like, okay, we better stand up. She's like, this is a national anthem. You stand for national anthems. So, so she's very, very much, you know, by the book sort of thing. Yeah. So, so let me ask you, do you think that, uh, well, you know, um, do you think that as she looks back on that experience almost mm-hmm. 60 years later, right? Yeah. Um, did she know then like what a major effort and, and how historically major what she was doing would become? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I, I, I think she, she, for the most part, she always, she kind of jokes. She says, you know, we didn't get interesting until 50 years later. <laughs> now, now everyone wants to talk to us. Yeah. Um, she did it because it was the right thing to do. Mm. Uh, this was guided by these principles and this is what you should do. Yeah. Uh, as LeVon Brown says in the film, you know, she shows the courage of her convictions. Uh, she didn't have to do this. No. Uh, but she knew she needed to. Mm. And so j- just from that alone, uh, it's, I don't think when you're in the moment you realize the importance of it until years mm-hmm. later. I think, you know, I think there's times we reflect back and like, wow, I'm, I'm glad I was a part of that. Mm-hmm. But she, I think was really telling about her in, in particular. And, and then you see this amongst several, you know, many of the civil rights activists was they didn't go about crowing about it later on. There are some, you know, who, who, who made a living off of it. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they just went on with their lives. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until these anniversaries that people started getting interested in the Freedom Riders and, and those sort of things. And so it was just, you did it because that's what you're supposed to do. And it was the right thing to do. And, and only now do people you know, really, even as kids, you know, we, we didn't really know her story. We, we saw the photographs and stuff. And we had civil rights people around the house you know, all the time and things. But those were just old people telling old stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I say old, oh, they're my age now. Yeah, you know, <laughs> what I, I am now, they were then. It was like right, oh, that's right. old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. So I'm wondering, um, just listening to you, do you think that, um, you know, obviously back then her her peers who were doing the the freedom rides and the sit-ins, you know, her, her mm-hmm. black peers, they were they were used to or had been exposed to uh, white hatred, white, mm-hmm. you know, white. Uh, that feeling of evil around right. you, you know, those people who hated that much. And, and I would imagine your mom hadn't really faced those kind of things in her, her youth growing up and everything. Do right. you think that she was caught off guard by really how intense it really was? Um, well, I think a lot of people were caught off guard, black and white. Mm-hmm. It just depends on where you lived. Uh, you know, you had the stories that were passed around, but there wasn't the mass media exposure that you have, uh, most of these events weren't caught on, caught on tape, if you will. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think my, my mom says she doesn't deal in fear. Mm. And I, gosh, I remember there was a story, I was actually, her, her roommate in, at Duke 
was just involved there at Duke and after that went home. And, but they were involved in the sit-ins and they're coming back one night. And I, and, I, and I called her about participating in the documentary. She said, I don't really have any stories. I'm just trying to get some life stories about her time at Duke and so forth. She said, I don't really remember too much. I mean, there was a time we got shot at. That's all, that's, that's really what stood out to me. I was like, what? <laughs> you got shot at? Yeah. So I called my mom up and said, hey, Lucia said you guys got shot at. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I guess we did, you know. Mm. You know, after after two or three times, you kind of forget. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, of course, mom. You know, mm. um, but that just kind of became life. Yeah, it kind of became that routine. So you you kind of a, you, you knew you could die. That was yeah. that was for certain. Mm-hmm. And if you could live with that, then what what could really truly stop you? So, so you know, we're talking, uh, and people definitely. I encourage you guys to to watch the documentary because it's very moving uh, and very educational. She is, uh, in my mind, one of those heroes uh, that demands uh, respect and acknowledgement. Clearly, uh, she was a lady ahead of her time. She walked through that mob in the war star. And they realized, of course, immediately where she stood. She joins Perlina and Annie at the counter, the first white to join the demonstration. And at this, the crowd is just incensed. They become like hornets. They start screaming at her. She wasn't the outside agitator. She was a white Southerner. She was a white Southern woman. And so for that purpose, she was even more dangerous to the white supremacist power structure. Here's this white Southern woman who's supposed to be protected by the system saying, I don't need this protection and I don't believe in the system. And so that made her incredibly dangerous. And that cell was 50 feet from the death chamber. That's where we were. As far as the state of Mississippi was concerned, we had committed capital crimes. We had no doubt we were going to die. Mississippi was known as the deepest of the deep south, the heart of darkness. Somebody was going to die that summer, and it looked like it was us. But you know, we do learn in the documentary that that she was actually disowned by her her parents for a right, period, right, right, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry, please. No, no, I was just saying, you know, that being the case, you know, and and I and I obviously we'll learn more about the fact that um, in the documentary that not only did she get disowned by her parents, but the the Duke University had her tested for mental illness. They thought she was <laughs> they thought she was mentally ill. Oh yeah, because of her dedication to this black cause, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, or, and, and you might be able to answer this, Loki, did she ever kind of doubt herself? Like, well, maybe I am not thinking clearly here when my parents are abandoning me, when everybody you know, at the school thinks I'm mentally ill, did she doubt herself? I don't know if she doubted herself. There was, I think there were times, she never doubted what she was doing. Um, I asked her once, I said, well, why you? She said, why not? Mm. What makes you so important? She said, absolutely nothing. I just saw something was wrong and decided to do something about it. Mm. Um, and, that's, and that's what we tell kids. You know, it, it, 
any of us can make a difference. We just have to make that choice, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? whatever that might be. Um, there, Mike O'Brien, who wrote, who's in the film and who wrote the book "We Should Not Be Moved," he he thinks there was a there was a little time when she was kind of she would feel isolated. Yeah. Um, even though she says the civil rights movement became family, that became your family because once you crossed that bridge, you couldn't go back. And that was also true for, for black students as well. You couldn't go back home because then you'd be identified, your parents could lose their job, your house could be bombed, those sort of things. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there was this, this poem she wrote that uh, was kind of this sort of introspective sort of thing, you know, who am I? And, you know, and, and this, this person asking her this question, actually, it's like, who are you? Well, I'm just me. And, you know, you're, you're strange type of thing. Um, but at the end, she's really good at compartmentalizing. Mm. So when the task needs to be done, shut off, shut off those emotions and go get it done. Uh, she's really, really good at that. She probably hate me for saying that, but that's just true. Um, so, yeah, so it's, 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 it's weird to kind of think about that a little bit. Just, just what's, what's the makeup of, of someone like that? You know, it, it really takes, these civil rights activists, they're, they're a different breed. Yeah, there, yeah. Uh, quite frankly, it's, it's just, I, I've had people ask me, you know, would, would you have sat at the lunch counter? I like to say I would. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have. Yeah. Quite frankly, but I don't have to because my mom already did. Right, right. But that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think about that myself, man. And and the older I've 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 gotten, the the more respect I have, especially for like you said, those college students doing those sit-ins, man. Like, yeah. you know, you talk about the courage. You yeah. know, I mean that that's just incredible. You know, to to and, and you'll see you see in the pictures, uh, which you know we we show here, mm -hmm. um, you know, as we're discussing this, but you know, just the to to face and confront that type of hatred and yeah. evil. Um, and, and to not know the outcome, you yeah. know, I mean, you know, th this is not a movie where somebody's going to say cut. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't, you don't know what this will lead to. I've, 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 I think I've counted about seven times. My mom has told me a story and said, and this is where we're, and this is when I thought we were going to die. Mm. You know, mm. uh, you're at war. Yeah. Uh, mm. You're a constant height of tension. I mean, even at Tougaloo College, the Klan would burn, would burn crosses on the campus, you know, right, right off the road, um, mm. County Line Road, I think it is, but, uh, and they would shoot up the houses on campus. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, this was, this was a, the, every day you were, you were dealing with this heightened awareness that you could be killed. It would just be like being a soldier in the field, like, mm -hmm. in battle. Yeah. You don't know when that day is going to come. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just keep moving forward, keep doing the work. Mm -hmm. That's the one so, thing you can control. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so Loki, uh, you know, how did you take the baton from her? In, in what form does that come in your in, in your life? <laughs> take the baton, you know. It's it's yeah. It's uh, there's always someone in the family, and then everyone else, all the other siblings go, oh well, thank goodness they did it. <laughs> Let them have it. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for me, I, I've I've always known I want to do film. I've always wanted to do documentaries. I've always been you know, drawn to these sort of stories to begin with. Um, it, it just kind of took on a life of its own. Once I did this film, An Ordinary Hero, everything just kind of shifted. And for me, I found you know, my way of doing something. Mm. My mom has said, you know, I can't do everything, but I can do something because doing nothing is not an option. Mm -hmm. 
right? So this is my way of this. This this, this is my way of doing sit-ins, right? Um, I was I was with uh, I was with my mother and and uh, Jerry Jerry Mitchell who wrote the book. Uh, what is it called? I'm looking over here for my book. Uh, Race Against Time. Great great book. Jerry Mitchell's an investigative reporter who brought all these Klansmen to justice. These killers. Um, 62 Baptist Church bomber, Maggie Evers killer, and, and so forth. Mm. Um, but, you know, he's there, Marion Wright Edelman, uh, Rena Evers, Maggie's daughter, Merle Evers. And we're at the house where Michael was killed. Um, and there's, you know, this, this, the different people are there as well. And people are kind of going around saying, hi, there's almost like this receiving line, if you will. And this, Rena's on my right, and my mom's on my left. And this lady comes to Rena, is like, oh, Rena, how you doing? And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't remember the lady's name. So she comes to me and she's like, who are you? And I'm like, ah, all right. Well, if I say Loki, she's gonna be like, yeah, who are you? Mm-hmm. And it was one of these like, who are you? Like, well, what are you doing here? You know. Um, so I just said, well, I'm I'm Joan's son. Mm. Joan, I didn't see you. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah. Sort of yeah. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. I'd done this. I'd already done a couple of films and stuff, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. I mean, I was yeah. allowed to be in the room with these legends. I mean, good grief. Right. Right. And Rena leans over and says. Don't worry, Loki. I don't have a name either. I'm just Megger's daughter. Mm. And uh, so, for years, you know, when we talked about this, you know, we uh, we want to escape our parents' shadow. We all want to be our own person. Uh, and, and eventually, with when you have someone like like that, you know, like my mother or like Medgar or whomever, um, there's responsibility that comes with. You know, continuing that legacy, preserving it and continuing it and making sure that the work that they did is not in vain. Mm. And that just, it just fell upon us. And eventually you realize that it's, you know, no matter what you're going to do, you're always going to be in that shadow. Mm-hmm. What a blessing to have that shadow to begin with. Yes. And um, it's definitely open doors and open opportunities that probably wouldn't have existed before for that has allowed me to share these sort of stories and such and mm-hmm. to do the work that I'm able to do. But and I can't skate on that either. Uh, so I continue to, to press forward to, to, to continue to, to add value to the work that my mother did and um, in any, any way, shape, and form. So that's, uh, you know, again, my brothers are always, you know, we're glad you're glad someone's doing it. And, uh, We've always been raised very, you know, very independently. And so if I'm doing it, they're not going to touch it, type of thing. Mm. And we don't get in each other's territories, if you will. So, but they're grateful that it's that it's being done. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about exactly what the foundation does. Yeah. So the the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation. It's, it's quite a mouthful, but uh, I named it after my mom and. Uh, that was a proper thing to do to honor your mother. Apparently, she doesn't agree with that. She's like, you could have picked a better name. <laughs> you didn't ask my permission. Well, I'm not asking for forgiveness either. <laughs> but, uh, but so uh, we, we exist to end racism through education. That's, that's what, what we're about. Um, and we do that through the films. We do that through our website, through the podcast, through uh, we have a curriculum and books that continue to share the stories of the civil rights movement. Uh, I, I call it the, the, the first true American revolution because it was for all Americans. Uh, it was for everyone. And, 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 and through that, 
we, we try to show kids that they can make a difference that you don't need to be a Dr. King or a Rosa Parks. We don't need to, you know, be someone that we, you know, that we don't feel we can attain, you know, that, that's unattainable, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. King is such a god now, right? Mm -hmm. Most kids can't even picture themselves being a Dr. King, mm -hmm. even though we all could. And so the stories of ordinary people who made a difference, and a lot of these people were uh, ages of elementary school kids, mm. right? Um, and so, so we, we, we try to share those stories to help kids see themselves in particular. And, and that's one of the things about my mom's picture in particular is, is that white kids can see themselves as part of a greater collective that, is, that we call America. Mm -hmm. right? That this is not just a black thing, right? The civil rights movement was an American thing. And, and that a, a lot of people were involved. I was actually just talking to a freedom writer today, Charles Pearson. Um, and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I wish people knew that there was a lot more white people involved in the movement. Uh, mm. Then maybe they'd be a lot more interested and understand what it was Good. really all about. And that was literally this morning. Yeah, I, and, I agree with that. Uh, and so my mom's story is this kind of Trojan horse, if you will, particularly for educators. Because one of the challenges you face in education is that 80% of the teachers are white women but the majority of the students are people of color now. Okay. They don't feel comfortable talking about these things. They don't know if they can talk about them. Is, is it okay if I, if I if, you know, you know is, it, is, this, is this my space? Am I gonna come across as racist if I say something? They don't know what to say. They, and so now comes my mom's story, which opens up to all these other stories. And it kind of brings down the barriers a little bit. Jerry Mitchell once said to me, that he said, you know, the greatest thing about your mom's story is the fact that she's white. Mm. And it's because most white people don't want to hear about this stuff anymore. Oh my gosh, Dr. King again? Didn't we just talk about that last year? You know, yeah. that sort of attitude about that. How much more can you talk about the civil rights movement? You know, we get it. We understand. Well, they don't, but nonetheless. Um, and again, then my mom's story comes along and they see themselves. But representation is so critical. Mm. And we understand that in education that, you know, uh, that people of color need to see themselves in history. Mm -hmm. Not just you know, migrant workers and, and slavery, right? Um, white people, you know, they should feel really good about themselves when they finish their education because that's all they ever see is white people doing great things, right? Uh, but at the same time, when it comes to something like the civil rights movement and they see my mom in there mm -hmm. or someone like a Bob Zellner or Joan Browning, um, that suddenly they start to understand and it becomes real. And then they want to start, they really start to want to learn more about the movement. Right. So it's, 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 it's a great thing. And it's our foundation. That's what we do. Uh, one of our big campaigns that we're kicking off is called a million students for change, where our goal is to provide curriculum for free to schools to a million students across the country. Mm. Uh, we do that through donations and you know, our speaking engagements and so forth. Uh, so people can go to our website, make a simple donation. I think it's $5 a month, provides curriculum for 30 students. And it's okay. The same as you. Um, but it's, it's a lot of, a lot of a little adds up to a lot. We're already at 30,000 students. So. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So let me ask you this, you know, obviously because like you said, the foundation, um, the aim is to end racism, to, yeah. 
to make a, a huge dent into, into ending it. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm just curious as to, you know, and, and I know you had mentioned this uh, to our producer about that, you know, whatever, whatever you know, Trump himself or, or what mm -hmm. he represents uh, really seems to, you know, propel racists to, to give them some life or some yeah. hope. You know, what do you, think it, what do you think it is about him or his ideology um, what it embodies that causes racists to overlook his poor character and his poor leadership. Yeah, boy, well, particularly poor leadership right now. <laughs> I can get into a lot about that, but um, you know, it's, it, he, he 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 speaks their language. I mean, he's he's another opportunist that's come along that you know, for political gains is just speaking what they want to hear. He speaks into their fears. Um, George Wallace was the same way, mm. right, the governor of Alabama. Yes. George Wallace was actually a moderate, a racial moderate before he became governor. But when he lost, he realized that the only way he was going to win is if he put, started playing that game, right? Uh, to quote him, he said, I'll never be out niggered again. Mm. That's what he said. Um, and so that's, that's the game he started to play. And we, we saw that, you know, you know, Richard Nixon, you know, took, took what he did and turned it into what's called the Southern strategy, you know, and Bush used it as well, uh, you know, where Reagan and, and, and you know, Bush Sr. And, and, and Trump is just another embodiment of that, mm -hmm. uh, playing into those fears that exist that, are very real to a lot of white people. They're unfounded, of course. You know, all fear, fear is false evidence appearing real. Mm -hmm. Take the word as an acronym, right? And so it's just the illusion that, that they're losing. Mm -hmm. And there's this fear that white people are gonna lose America. Hmm. When you've been told for 400 years that this is your country, now someone's gonna take it away, right? Hmm. Uh, and what's gonna happen? What's going to happen to me? We we've been suppressing people for so long. I mean, good grief! You know, it's it's going to come back on us, mm. right? Uh, so that 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 game was played all along. That's that's what kept slavery alive, right? That's yeah. what kept you know that's that was part of the game of Jim Crow. That's the war on drugs. Everything plays in that. Trump's just another player in you know in in this game, mm -hmm. uh, and we shouldn't be surprised by it either. By the way. Um, Every time there's been progress, there's been a backlash. Yeah. When slavery ended, and you know you had the you, know, you had the Jim Crow laws come in, right? Civil rights movement, the war on drugs, Obama, Trump. Yeah. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. It's it's I think what I think what's happened is quite frankly is we got a little comfortable uh, over the past you know, couple decades, if if you will, in general that to see something this open and outward, this manifestation is just unreal. And uh, just the, the, the party's divided. There's not a lot of middle ground and, you know, for people to actually have a real dialogue. There's not real conversations taking place. It's just mm -hmm. people shouting at each other. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I talk about this a lot. I actually had someone ask me you know, recently, they said, well, who are you to be talking about diversity and inclusion and these sort of things and racism? I said, well, if white people have created white supremacy, shouldn't we be at the forefront of ending it? Because mm. you really, it's not going to end. 
quite frankly, it's this, well, well, of course, you know, black people are going to talk about it. They've got an agenda. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, it's called freedom. But, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when a white person talks about it, suddenly it's like, well, you really can't ignore that. And you can, you could throw some, you know, some lobs and stuff. Well, I've been told that I have absolute hate for the white race, you know. Um, I remember when I got my first piece of hate mail, you know, proverbial piece, it was an email. You know, I, I told my mom and, and Lou Vaughn Brown and others, and they were like, hey, congratulations, you know, welcome to the club. Yeah. Right? My wife wasn't amused. Um, but at least you know you're making a dent, people are listening. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, 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 it's incumbent upon white people to really give voice to this, mm-hmm. to counter the narrative that is being espoused by, you know, by Trump and his followers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so you know, with the foundation and and the mission and the messaging, describe to me what a, an ideal, um, I guess, uh, white person, white parent, um, you know, kind of their attitude uh, that exists already that your messaging would penetrate so that they would take action. Describe kind of what their attitude would, would be like even before they met you and your message. Um. You know, it's, it's uh, everyone's so unique and different. I don't know what the ideal person would be. Part of the, um, you know, there's a film I did called Black, White, and Us. I'm going to pick on that. I'm not, I'm not pitching here. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's all good. It's about racism through the lens of transracial adoption. It's kind of a mouthful. But it's about these white families who adopt, who, who believe that racism didn't exist anymore. And then they adopt these black children. Suddenly racism is very real to them. Mm. It becomes very personal. Uh, the, the, the problem that you typically face with racism is that white people think they know what it is and it ain't them. Mm. It's black and white photographs. It's bad people. Um, you know, who's, who's the author of uh, white privilege? Well, white fragility. There we go. I got a book right here. White fragility. Um, Robin DiAngelo. Mm. So uh, she, she, she articulates this very, very well in that. Um, you know, we, we meaning white people, we, we see racism, again, as, as characters of, of bad people who do bad things. Burning crosses, you know, the lunch counter stuff, you know, lynchings. Um, and I'm not a bad person, and I don't do that, so thus I can't be racist. What they don't understand, what they don't see is the foundation of racism. That, uh, yes, our country might have been built on principles, this ideal principles of equality, right? Uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that all men are created equal. But that was, that was created on a foundation of racism and you can't ignore that. I mean, good grief, we, codif- we codified it in a constitution, mm-hmm. right? So the, uh, but they don't actually see that. They don't quite understand how that plays out and that we're all downstream of the past. Just because slavery ended or Jim Crow ended doesn't mean racism ended, right? Right. Um, so, so what ends up happening is when you call someone racist, the defenses go up because I'm not that person. Mm. Uh, or when you say white people, all of a sudden, like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. It's like, okay, look, that's a generic term that's being used. It doesn't mean you necessarily, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, we're really good at sitting there doing the blanket sweep on black people, right? But when that happens to us, oh my gosh, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but 
so 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 from that standpoint it's 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 finding people who who are willing to listen mm-hmm. uh, and that's the biggest challenge right now is people who are willing to listen that's why we talk to kids because kids are open no one's born racist right as i tell people don't worry if your kids aren't racist society will take care of it anyways mm-hmm. right um because we we all learn everyone white and black we learn how to judge people we, 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 you know, everyone is prejudiced if you grow up in America, you're going to learn that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. You can't escape it. My mother, after 70, you know, 70 plus years, still has racist tendencies. Mm. People are like, well, how's that possible? Well, she grew up in America. You know, she watched the same TV shows you did. She watched the same news reports. She read the same newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Right? The same conversations that would take place. Just, mm-hmm. just because she is who she is doesn't mean she doesn't have to work at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And you've got to be willing to work at it, but you can't do that without the knowledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Otherwise, you're just going to default back to your own tendencies. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, the the ideal person is someone who's just willing to listen. Yeah. But quite frankly, that's always just the case. Who's, who's who knows what's right, and we all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a matter of being being willing to take that leap to get uncomfortable. Because the truth is, the truth is typically uncomfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we don't like to be uncomfortable. And we protect ourselves. And that's why I tell people, look, you got to have a lot of patience talking to people. Mm-hmm. You attack someone's ignorance, they're going to double down on stupid. Mm. Every time. Yeah, right. yeah. And so you got to be willing to walk with them. A little mm-hmm. bit. Meet them where they're at and then bring them along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Add, add to that. And so mm-hmm. that's, it's, and unfortunately in, in this world of social media and stuff, we, we, you know, it's too easy to tap a couple keys and hit send and blow someone up. Yeah, it, no one likes to be attacked. So mm-hmm. why would you be surprised when someone just shuts you down, or mm-hmm. or comes or dies back into their same typical responses mm-hmm. that that are just those typical tropes that we see all the time? Mm-hmm. And it's 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 because of whether well, they're just being defensive, and they think it's per- and they're taking it very personal. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. think you're talking about them. Yeah, and most people aren't that type of racist. They just aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we too often will brand people as saying something racist. Well, you're a racist. Well, well hold on. You know, you have to allow people to be ignorant. Mm. I mean, I, I know a lot of black people who don't know black history. Mm-hmm. Now, that shocks a lot of white people. And I go, well, why would that be surprising? I mean, where, where are you? You know, like, I'll, I'll talk to someone, you know, like a white person. I'll go, well, where are you from? They're like, well, uh, well, my family's Irish. I'm like, okay, tell me some Irish history. They're like, what? Tell me some famous Irishmen. What? I'm like, so give me a break. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's, that's true, definitely in terms of, um, you know, what you're saying. And also the, the, other, the other additional problem that, that we've confronted as African-Americans is that our history hasn't been taught no. um, in schools the way no. that it should have been, right? right. So, um, you know, like you said, you know, saying we know what the curriculum, you know, taught us. And we know if we were raised in a, in a family that really cared about passing down history, they would teach us. Um, right. Also, you know, maybe in church and, and different places like that. But, you know, obviously we don't have the, the big encyclopedias that, yeah. you know, uh, white American history has. You know, we, we have a, a little, you know, section of the, of the last volume of a 20-page encyclopedia right. <laughs> about yeah, yeah. our so, you know, it's not only the fact that, you know, 
Um, maybe some of us haven't made the efforts, but also it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy. No, no. Well, there's, uh, and I, I was talking to some educators last week uh, on a Zoom call and so forth, and, and I talked about this representation then and why it was so critical. Um, and, and, and to your point on this is that uh, the history that you are taught isn't the right history. And, it, and it's, it's sometimes like this, 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 this lady had come up to me at a conference. And this is a story I told him. It was a AAAM conference, Association of African-American Museums. And African-American lady about my age came to me and was thanking me for, you know, the, saw the foundation of my mom and so forth. Was thanking us. Uh, and she said, you know, when I went to school, elementary school, which would have been the late 70s, early 80s, she said, I was the only black kid in my class. And then she said, and when we talked about slavery, everyone looked at me. So that all I knew about my people was that we were slaves. Mm. Now, I knew for a fact she probably went home and her parents told her something else, right? But look how strong the impression is when you see it in books, what your teacher is telling you is a voice of authority. And mm -hmm. uh, what kid believes their parents anyways, right? So you're in school all this time and you're, you're, you're digesting all of this. This is the diet you're fed. So uh, that's going to make an impression, no matter how hard other people try to tell you differently. And so, uh, and then I told the t teacher, I said, now, if that's how she felt about herself, imagine how her white peers thought about her. Mm. And I, I was... Uh, I was in, gosh, I forget where it was, somewhere in Indiana, some university there. I was speaking to a group of students. I said, tell me some famous, tell me famous people in history. Let's, you know, there's this huge whiteboard and we wrote all these names on there. I said, give me some names of famous people in history. Go. And they're like, uh, George Washington. I'm like, George Washington wrote up on the board. Beyonce. Oh, okay. Beyonce. Right. Mm -hmm. We went through all this. I didn't specify. So, all right, go ahead. Um, and by the time we finished, we calculated it. 70% of the people that they talked about were white men, mm. right? Uh, there was 5% uh, were women, mm -hmm. just women period, which is interesting because 50% of the population is women, so. But um, that's through their entire, this is college educated kids through their entire elementary and primary, secondary, primary, whatever you call it, education. They came out of it with the knowledge that white people is what you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. That's all they saw. That's what education gave them. And so that's where, uh, that's why, that's why working with kids is so critical to, to bring in these other stories, to help them see themselves, to help the teachers see their kids. And in this film, Black, White, and Us, I come back to this. We, I talk about this with educators. I said, you need to watch the film if you're an educator, because I know that you say, these are my kids. That's what teachers always say. Well, how much do you really know your kids? What do you really know about them? You need to be like these white parents. Right? So to come back to your original question about what the ideal parent is, the ideal parent would be a white adoptive parent. Utah leads the U.S. in the, the rate of transracial adoption. Surprising, right? What do most people think of when they think of Utah? They think of Mormon and they think of white. So if you want to see what whiteness looks like, this is a good sample of what it looks like. There was a teacher who threw out cotton on the floor and remarked like, oh, the black kids pick it up so fast. I get comments about, you're reading too much into this, Carol. Why are you so 
focused on race. We lost, we lost sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, neighbors. There's an incredibly robust and profitable industry based in Utah who market their services to birth mothers in the inner city throughout the U.S. Whoa, are you really gonna say it's a supply and demand to skin color? Because there's more going on to that and we have to acknowledge that. I remember coming back from lunch and I was walking down the hallway. There was a, a group of people in KKK robes. And, and I think that if, if we're gonna have social change and if whites are responsible for that, these parents are the ones that will lead. These children are black in a white world. They are forced to make uh, racism personal. It's not about someone else. It's about you know their kids. It's about them. And I tell people, uh, you know, sometimes with the screens of the films, and I'll say to people, so how good of a friend? I said, okay, it's always you typically get mixed audience. I said, okay, you know, this is just for the white people in the audience, you know, because I said, I know all of you have a black friend. Every, every white person has a black friend. There's some mythical black friend you have. Um, how good of a friend are you? Right? Do you believe them when they tell you something that happened or do you brush it off and try to qualify it? Maybe that's not what they meant. Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe you misunderstood the police. You know, those sort of things. It's like, just believe me. When, uh, when, when someone tells you that something happens, you know, just believe it. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, as I think Luvon Brown said to me in a recent podcast, you know, is, is black people are guilty from birth. They have to prove their innocence every day. Mm -hmm. White people are just assumed you are. Right. I, I agree with that totally. Uh, so, uh, you know, obviously, you, you know, number one, you have wonderful stories and, and, and have a, uh, and you're well read in terms of you know what what you're working uh, with in terms of your your mission of your your foundation mm -hmm. there. Um, so how could people continue to listen to you, learn from you, uh, in, engage with you through your yeah. podcasting and so forth? I appreciate that. Yeah. So we have the podcast called The Uncomfortable Truth, which is an extension of the film. So that's the film that won the Emmy. Ah. Um, but uh, I'm proud of it. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was I was going to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so The Uncomfortable Truth is this film. It's about the history of institutional racism in America. It's how we got to where we are. Now, you have to understand a little bit about the film in and of itself is that it's not pointing fingers at other people. Because remember when I said, if you attack people, they're just going to double down on stupid. The walls will go up, mm -hmm. right? So the film actually points fingers back at my family. Our mm -hmm. family goes all the way back to 1610. Mm -hmm. We're one of the original planter elites. We served in the House of Burgess. Uh, mm -hmm. We had two plantations. Uh, you went to school at Hampton, down the Hampton Roads, right? Yes. Uh, you know, we used to own that area. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so we helped create the, we helped start the whole thing, right? And ever since my mom, we've been working to dismantle that, what we, what we helped create. So that film gives you this whole interesting dynamic about American history and takes you through that. Um, the podcast, now the film is primarily LaVon Brown and I. LaVon's a freedom writer. My mom was the first white woman he ever trusted. And uh, him and I just kind of hit it off. And, and he was, he's in An Ordinary Hero. And there's a thing he says in An Ordinary Hero, well, as we're shooting An Ordinary Hero, that becomes, becomes a catalyst for The Uncomfortable Truth. And it's in the film, The Uncomfortable Truth. But so LaVon and I decided, let's do a podcast to extend the conversation. Um, 
that started in the Huntful Truth because we have a very good rapport with each other. You know, we're, we're friends. We have a very intimate relationship that allows us to have a conversation that, quite frankly, needs to be had, but a lot of white people just aren't having because they don't have those relationships. We're still a very hypersegregated society. Yes, you might have that friend, that friend at work or that friend on Facebook, um, but they're not going to have conversations with you because they don't trust you. And there's a level of trust that, that Levon and I have developed over the years that I can ask some of the questions that, you know, quite frankly, people would look really cross at me for. Mm. But I ask them because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sit there in the mind of, of the average white person who really wants to know. For example, we have a podcast that's all about can black people be racist? Because mm -hmm. white people say that all the time. Well, black people are racist. They're racist to you know, they're racist to me too. I'm like, oh, okay, well, technically black people can't be racist in American society. So, but let's have that discussion. Mm -hmm. right? What does that look like? What does that mean? And so forth. And so we're, him and I, that's, that's, that's what we do. Um, so there's that. Uh, you, know, you can find us on Facebook. We've got our foundation page, Instagram. We're we do some Twitter stuff as well. It all feeds together. But um, I have my own website as well, lokimalholland.com, where I have my blogs and my podcasts as well. That all feeds into this. Uh, we speak around the country. Right now, of course, we're not running around the country. But um, I said just, you know, just, just the other week, I was doing a Zoom call with about 19 educators on the topics of diversity and inclusion. Um, so all of that exists. You know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. and, and can you actually uh, tell us the, the foundation's website once again? Yeah, foundation website is thejtmfoundation.org. So T-H-E-J-T-M-foundation.org. Or you can type in Joan Trump Howard Mulholland. It's a little long, so <laughs> but if you Google my mom, I think she's. I think the foundation is like the fifth item on the list. So okay. On the front page of, of Google's, you know, search terms when it comes to my mother. So. Sure. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, terrific, terrific. So you know, you and I talked about this uh, off camera about obviously the, the theme of the network, yeah. uh, you know, or I should say the theme of the show, you know, Black Refresh 2020. Uh, just talking about this this pause in in history with this mm. pandemic, and many people are staying at home, um, and we don't know how long this some variation of this stay at home will last, right? right. We we just right. don't know. But because it's a pause in American history, we really have the opportunity as African Americans to kind of step back, reassess, um, galvanize, uh, decide to unite and move together in a positive direction mm -hmm. uh, and take ownership of uh, some of our issues and not wait for those that um, have have harmed us, who have stunted us and so forth to solve things for us, right? right. Um, but on your end, because you are actually solving things on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you are on the other side helping to educate, um, you know, people uh, who... Uh, are, you know, are white to understand what racism is mm -hmm. and to identify it within themselves right. um, and to hopefully solve some of those issues. So at the conclusion of this pandemic pause, if you kind of had your way and your wish list, what would you like things to look like from your, the work that you do and the impact it has? Well, first, I'd like to see someone get out of the White House, uh, first <laughs> foremost, but <laughs> I'm a, yeah. I don't want to get too political here. Uh, but um, honestly, I want to see dialogue. Uh, I, I want to see a space where people can have honest conversations, where people aren't judging each other. One of the one of the things that happens is is that 
we'll get into a space, someone's, someone asks an honest question and everyone gets lit over it. Mm. And it's like, hold on. So if, if we can't ask those questions, if we can't have that dialogue, uh, what ends up happening is white people retreat. Mm. Quite frankly, they, 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 you know, the second they get attacked, they're like, see, there they go again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and again, that's why I come back to that. There's that exercise of patience so to allow people to actually speak and ask questions, because that's, that's really where it, it, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's one person at a time. And, uh, and that's, that's what I try to, try to do. So uh, what I hope to do when, when things get back to normal in regards of the pandemic and so forth and people are back at school is that we can really start to work with teachers even more. I mean, te- you know, getting the education material to kids is great, but uh, and you can change a student, but if, but if we can change this teacher, man, how many thousands of students come through that door over the yeah. years? And really to be able to make that impact and um, and and have those levels of information, you know, you got to grade it up, and um, so every step of the way, we want to be able to provide people with information that uh, as, as their mind opens and expands, you know, they're, they're seeing things and, and learning new things and such. So even on our website for educators, we have an educators tab, which you know, educators can tap into, and we have an interactive civil rights map, and we have the films, uh, education versions. And we even have a section about, you know, here's some books to go read, go educate mm-hmm. yourself. Don't just you know, listen to us and listen to other people as well. We, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a member of a particular fraternity, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, my uh, my ADP said, you know, he says all the time, you know, uh, uh, Pastor Lynch. He says we need each other to survive, you know, and, and we truly do. We, we truly do. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, and I'm glad you pointed out that you are a member of Omega Sci Fi Fraternity Incorporated. Incorporated. Uh, actually, uh, you know, for for our audience. Um, uh, we produced a, a, a documentary called The White Bra. Yeah. Um, oh, you did that one? Yeah, that was me. That was all me. right, all right. right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so hopefully, um, if you haven't seen it, it, it would give you uh, um, kind of answers to questions of, of, of my African or our African-American brothers yeah. in, in the fraternity. Like, why would somebody want to do it? Their experiences. Um, so since you brought it up, I might as well plug it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, there's more, you know, there's more than just me. So <laughs> Exactly. But, um, but, uh, but anyway, man, you know, like I said, I, I really, really appreciate the, the work that you're doing, man. And, Thank you. Um, and, and you definitely are, uh, you know, as they used to say, a, a chip off the old block, you know what I'm saying? I appreciate because, that. You know what I mean? Because, you know, y- your mom did not take the easy way out. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she, she had to climb that mountain, you know, and she could have just, walked around it, avoided it, you know, mm-hmm. um, but she climbed it. And, and the work that you're doing, uh, that's not easy work either, you know, and, and that's something that, um, you know, you're, you're climbing that mountain, man. And, and I really believe you're going to leave a legacy. Um, and, 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 I, and I pray that both of us, you know, are able to accomplish what we want for, you know, the American race, the human race, you know, all of those kind of things. So mm-hmm. um, thanks so much, Loki, for Amen. what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, and thanks for coming on board. Right on. All right, take care. All right, you too now. Rue. Rue.